Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again. Um, Yesterday, the Commission on Taxation and Social Welfare, which was an independent body set up by government some time back to look into the options for taxation and social welfare um, in the future. And uh, basically what the report intends to do is to try and directly increase tax revenues or to reform the structure of the taxation system and social insurance system so that additional tax revenues can be raised over time at the lowest possible cost. Okay, so in the face of aging demographics, in the face and the implications of that for health spending and um, pension spending and so on, uh, this is just taking a look at how the tax and welfare system can be made sustainable in the longer term. Um, I think it is interesting to um, consider who were members of this commission before um, I talk about what the report actually contained. Um, it it was chaired by a Professor Neve Maloney from the London School of Economics and Political Science. There was a tax consultant called Marie Bradley, Philip Brennan, who was the former assistant secretary of the revenue commissioners. There was the president of the Irish Tax Institute, uh, Sandra Clark. There was Rowena DeWire, who is with Enterprise Ireland. Uh, There was a guy, Philip Kermode, from the European Commission, whom I've never heard of. Um, There was a lady, Ephany Lachlan, from the Irish Irish Environmental Network, there was a lady called Rena Maycock, who was the founder of Kilter Technologies. That's a private sector tech company. And I, I mentioned that for a specific reason in a second. 
there was John Mark McCafferty, who is the CEO of Threshold. There was a guy, Tom McDonnell, who's a director, a co-director of the Nevin Economic Research Institute. Fergal O'Brien, who's the director of IBEC. Uh, Barra Rowntree, who's an economist in the ESRI. And Anne Vaughan, who's the former deputy secretary of the Department of Social Protection. So a pretty diversified bunch of people. Uh, Can I ask but, you a question, Jim, yes. about, about that list of people and, and who they are, without casting any aspersions or saying anything about any one individual? Could you see yourself at their Christmas party? Uh, no, <laughs> no, I think there'd be a row. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, more from just having fun. No, absolutely not. But the uh, I, I, th I think the point is that there's a very heavy bias away from people who actually run businesses in this country and who are actually responsible for entrepreneurship. And I'm going to interrupt you again. I'm going to interrupt you again because I'll tell you a great story about Ken Clark, who was um, one of the last remaining decent Tories left in the UK. He was asked about his time as Chancellor of the Exchequer working with people not unlike some of the ones that you've just described there. And he said, well, what's it like working inside the Treasury? And Ken Clark, the ex-Chancellor of the Checker, said, yeah, it's, it's like being in an Oxford or Cambridge college, having dinner at high table. You're surrounded by absolutely brilliant people, people who could win a Nobel Prize in their field, the, the deepest intellects, the greatest minds, brains the size of a planet. It's an extraordinary bunch of people not one of whom could run a Welk school. <laughs> there you are. There you are. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I, I think there is a heavy bias in this group uh, away from people like that. Um, I mentioned Rena Maycock, who's the CEO and founder of Kilter Technologies, a company I know very little about, but uh, she was one of those who demurred from the report yesterday. She didn't agree with all of its findings. You know, I think according to newspaper quotes, felt that there was not enough focus on entrepreneurship and the business side of the equation. Um, there was, it's a 500 page report. There are 116 recommendations. Um, do you want me over the next six hours to go through those 116 recommendations or? I'd rather you didn't, mate. Okay, you, right. You know, you've got 30 seconds, no more. <laughs> oh, okay, now that, there's, there's lots of stuff in there that will be discussed at great length over, you know, over time. Uh, basically, in relation to taxation, the intention is to broaden the tax base to limit the need for higher tax rates. Um, and as part of that, shifting taxation away from taxes on labor and towards taxes on capital, wealth and consumption. So they want the property tax extended. They want the um, various thresholds for capital acquisition tax uh, reduced. Um, they want, as far as I can understand, the capital gains tax rate increased. Um, but one, one interesting paragraph is that they say that while personal taxes are highly progressive, the exclusion of large numbers of individuals in the personal tax system is becoming increasingly problematic from a fiscal sustainability and reciprocity perspective, which increases vulnerabilities. So they're, they're basically saying that there's a cohort of people in the system who are not in the tax net and they want to do something about that. And um, this flies in the face of government policy over the last decade, which basically 
following the introduction of the USC, which, okay, nobody wanted at the time, but it was introduced at a time of fiscal crisis and economic crisis in 2009. Um, But the one positive thing you say about that tax is that it resulted in a significant broadening of the tax base. But what has happened since, in other words, bring more people into the tax system. But what has happened since then in progressive, progressively over successive budgets, more and more people have been removed from the tax net by changes mainly in the uh, USC thresholds and so on. So I, I was relieved to see the Commission on Taxation actually, you know, addressing that point. But um, there's a lot in there. Was there a tax single tax proposal in these 542 pages for any particular individual or group of taxes to be cut? Um, no. Yeah, I think that's no. instructive, isn't it? It is. It is very, very instructive. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I'd say about, yeah. the, about this sort of thing is that uh, um, it... Uh, are the authors of reports like this practical men and women? And I wonder sometimes, uh, because I see a lot of economists and, and other policy types issue reports like this, and I think it's all very well being purist and being theoretically correct, arguing from points of principle. We need the, the blank sheet of paper saying, in an ideal world, this is what you would do type stuff. That's what I regard university departments and academic journals to be all about, in fact. But when you are a commission on taxation, which is you are being asked from a practical policy perspective, give us some recommendations. And I think the subtext, or perhaps it should be made explicit rather than mere subtext of any request or terms of reference to a commission like this is give us stuff that might stand a chance of working. Give us stuff that might actually stand a chance of being implemented, given the political context in which you are actually operating in. Don't deliver a whole bunch of stuff, hundreds of pages of material that nobody's ever going to read, so it won't make an impact. It's got to be impactful, and it's got to stand a chance of being implemented. And I think that the documents like this, historically at least, completely fail that test. They're, they're just almost a complete waste of time because they, they just gather dust on the shelves. It, I think maybe it is a terms of reference problem. These kinds of organizations need to be asked, give us something that stands a chance of being implemented. Give us something that stands a chance of working. Give us something that we as a political government would feel comfortable doing. But if you're going to deliver something to us that looks like Sinn Féin's manifesto, uh, please don't bother and we won't waste the money on actually commissioning these kinds of reports. Well, it is interesting that Leo Varadkar came out directly after the publication of the report, basically saying that many of these measures uh, would not be implemented or introduced in a government that he was part of. So, you know, he, he fundamentally disagrees with a lot of it. But it, it was interesting that there was a quote in the Irish Times this morning from Tom McDonnell, who is the ICTU representative, and he works in the Nevin Economic Research Institute, which is a left-wing think tank. And his criticism of the overall report of which he was part was that there was way too much focus on enterprise and not enough on society. Um, you know, it's it's quite extraordinary. A, a trade union leader who's meant to be represent, or a trade union, he's representing the trade union movement. Um, and and he's blatantly been anti 
entrepreneurship, anti-enterprise. I mean, these are the companies, the people that actually create the jobs, that generate the tax revenues, that actually fund social expenditure. And I think there's something interesting going on here, Jim, because Ireland's current economic position, if you're me and if you're you, without wishing to put putting, up, putting words in your mouth, we would describe it as Ireland's economic model, and we would describe it as not without wrinkles, not without problems, but Ireland's successful economic model, particularly when we compare it to the, to the Ireland that we knew many years ago. Um, by and large, this is an incredibly successful, prosperous society. And economics model is based, Ireland's economic model is based on economic prosperity. It's about people doing well. And there's a lot of people doing well. And there's not everybody's doing well. And it strikes me that a lot of the critics of the Ireland's economic model, the Irish Times people that we speak about and, and others in previous podcasts, including perhaps some trade unionists, simply don't like Ireland's economic model. They don't like this one that is based on aspiration, prosperity, people doing well, people earning a few quid. These sorts of things, I think, are anathema. And you do wonder what alternative economic model they posit. And I don't think they're challenged enough to, to be able to say what the alternative economic model would be, and therefore what would the Irish economy look like if we implemented an alternative model. We never get that sort of thing. And we go on and on about Sinn Féin. But it's really interesting to compare and contrast left-wing uh, politics in Ireland and left-wing politics in the UK. One of the things that the Conservative Tory government here in the UK is desperately trying to do at the moment is paint the Labour Party, the Socialist Party, in opposition as a high tax policy, which carries all sorts of ironies, given that the current Tory government is operating with the highest tax take of the economy since Christ was alive, and they've been in power for 12 years. So I don't know how they can claim not to be the high tax party, but we'll put that to one side. But the Socialist Party here is equally keen to be not painted as a high tax party. They really are desperate to try and head that Tory political manoeuvre off. They don't want to be seen, electorally at least, as a high taxation party. And yet the left-wing socialist party Sinn Féin in Ireland is very keen to paint themselves as a high tax or a more tax policy. And so it's really interesting asking why that difference, because the success of the Tories, if they are successful in painting Labour with this brush, is essentially the, to... Uh, encourage everybody in the UK to think, oh my God, if we have a Labour government next, all of our taxes are going up. This very clever trick that Sinn Féin have pulled off, and the way and it operates through things like this Commission in Taxation, I think carries the same flavour, is the idea that, okay, taxes are going up, but it's not going to be my taxes. Sinn Féin's electoral appeal is that somebody else's taxes are going to be put up, which runs counter to one of the things that was said by that Commission that I think both you and I would agree with, um, but we would agreed with it for years, is that Ireland, Ireland's tax base is too narrow. Hence, there aren't, you know, there is a huge cohort of people who have incomes that aren't taxed, and there are lots of reasons for that. But the Commission, I think, is right to say that there are social and political dynamics to that, not just financial and economic ones. There is no sense in which we're all in this together, certainly not from an income tax point of view. And broadly speaking, the tax base is too narrow. So it's very clever, isn't it, that you... You can be painted as a party of high taxation, be proud of that fact, but you don't lose any electoral appeal because you've managed to convince everybody that the taxes that are going up are not going to be yours. 
You're Indeed. Laughing. Yeah, I'm laughing. Yeah, it's a that's a pretty intricate explanation for Sinn Fein's um, electoral appeal at the moment. Um I I I'd have to say that, you know, looking at this overall report, I've just looked at the recommendations, haven't got through the five hundred plus pages yet. But uh I'm disappointed, you know, Jim. Yes, exactly. But I'm 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 not being I'm not writing it off. Um there are some things in there that certainly I think should and probably will get into the policy arena. But, um, you know, the, the, this notion that we can just continue to increase taxes, uh, continue to grow public spending. And at the same time, there is no suggestion in here that the manner in which public spending is undertaken is actually reformed. Um, because, you know, I would seriously believe that many of the organs of state are just not efficient in using the inputs to deliver the best possible output outputs in the most efficient way. So I would like to see a much greater focus here on the ref- of, on significant reform of the way in which public services are actually delivered. And uh, but Jim, Jim, hang on yeah. a minute. Let's, let's let's go back to basics here. We're talking about we're taking as read. We're taking it's axiomatically given that um, taxes in Ireland have to go up. Um, You're running a huge budget surplus at the moment. Why do they have to go up? Exactly. (laughs) Is there something about to happen that's going to cause a fiscal crisis of the state? No, this this Commission on Taxation is taking a medium to long-term perspective. It's looking at the implications of um, demographics mainly. Okay, so it's based on a lot of presumably forecasts that, you know, there's aging populations. We're all, you know, going to be requiring more health care and more pensions and all yeah. that kind of stuff, which is yeah. very plausible. Um, but we all know that, A, their forecasts and regular listeners to this podcast will know what we think about forecasts generally. And in particular, in the area of demographics, how often have we got demographic forecasts spectacularly wrong in the past? Ah, yeah, I mean, this, the CSO's last attempt at, population and labor force projections um you know was wildly um conservative and uh unfortunately the housing needs assessment that is run by government agencies to try and determine the housing supply that's required it was based on these 2016 projections which as i say were wildly um i won't say optimistic they 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 totally um, underestimated the growth in population okay but the problem is that it is those 2016 projections that are still driving the housing needs assessment um, obviously well I hope that over the coming months they will change this significantly um, to take effect to take account of the 2022 uh, but a census but also you know make sure that all of this dezoning and rezoning that is happening around the country based on the 2016 housing needs assessment process. Uh, it's all wrong. It needs well, to I change. We, we had a commenter on our website, didn't we, about this this very specific issue. We did, that, that, we did indeed. That the, the housing needs are being based on um, old and out-of-date demographic projections yeah. and people are still sticking rigidly to them. And a more general point about that the planning system around Ireland that just simply allows these one-off dormer bungalows to be built in on large plot sizes so that nothing else can ever be developed around there because then these people become NIMBYs. Slightly harsh, 
description of perhaps the entire country, but I, I suspect there's an element of truth to it as well. There, yeah, certainly there, are, there certainly are, from my perspective, an incredible amount of incredibly ugly dormer bungalows around Ireland these days. Um, but, but that's my own aesthetic sens sensibilities. Um, but the, the planning system clearly needs reform. But I, going back to that point about demogra demographics and forecasting, uh, a different economic outlook could be based on simply saying, okay, well, what we're going to do is what we've managed to do over the last few years since, that, since 2016 and import an awful lot of people. We're going to have this incredibly successful economic model that half the world seems to want to come and work in. Um, it isn't the dystopian nightmare that Sinn Féin and the Irish Times point, paint it, um, modern Ireland. It is actually somewhere where an awful lot of people from overseas want to come and work and live. So that would solve our demographic problem. And if we um, uh, adapted the planning regime to take account of this uh, high immigration model, which will power our economy and build all the houses for these and um, current inhabitants of Ireland in which to live, problem sorted. We can have a high growth economy where the demographics are much better. The age profile is much better because we have a younger population because immigrants are typically younger which takes care of all of those aging population issues and means we don't have to put taxes up anymore. What do you think about that as an alternative? Absolutely. And um, it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why the demographic impact on our tax revenues hasn't materialized over the last number of years. Um, it's largely because we are seeing this very strong inward migration. And that is one of the most positive arguments you can make about inward migration. You know, the fact that if you have an influx of young, productive people into your economy, they will increase your growth potential. They will keep the age dependency rate down and they will ensure that you will not require this massive increase in taxation, which this commission document is actually um, advocating for. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, that is a model that's working for Ireland. And I say bring it on. Long may it continue. Chris, can I go across the water? Um, you know, we're coming up to the Queen's funeral. Before we talk about that, uh, Liz Truss um, is just over a week in office at this juncture. Clearly, that week has been overshadowed by the Queen's death. So we know very little of what she's about. But I was, I was just looking at what she was promising during her campaign um, she's going to keep the corporation tax rate at 19%, whereas Rishi Shunak was going to increase to 25%. She's talking about deficit finance tax cuts. She's talking about regulatory reform. Both of those policies are straight out of the um, Reaganite textbook. She is talking about low tax zones and relaxed planning in certain parts of the UK. Um, she wants to lift the trend growth rate to 2.5%. It's estimated at about 1.7% at the moment. And of course, she wants to scrap all EU laws that still apply by 2023. And I guess the most prominent policy she's been proposing is a two-year energy price guarantee scheme. So that seems to be um, what Liz Trust stands for at this stage. But as we've often said here um, in different contexts, um, it is possible to campaign in poetry, but you have to govern in prose. Um, how do you think, you know, she will succeed in trying to achieve those objectives? And before I hand back to you on that, <laughs> there was a fabulous quote in The Economist last weekend 
about the cabinet she's putting in place. And there was a specific reference to the business secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg. And the quote is, he should be put in a museum, not in charge of anything. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting cabinet from a number of perspectives, Jim. The uh, ethnic diversity is worth remarking on. I think it is the most ethnically diverse cabinet in British history. The, for, the, the four great offices of state, Prime Minister, Chancellor, Home Secretary and Foreign Secretary, are all now occupied by anything other than a white man. That's never happened before. Uh, it's the third female Prime Minister. And these are all Tories we're talking about, which is one of, one of the great British paradoxes that puts the Labour Party to shame, because they're the ones that traditionally uh, are more egalitarian, more equal, and more concerned about these things. So it's, it, that's interesting. Uh, it goes to show that um, being ethnically diverse, um, being gender diverse, uh, doesn't necessarily lead to good outcomes. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. In this particular case, I don't think it will. If you take the new Chancellor of the Exchequer, Kwasi Kwarteng, he um, is an Oxbridge graduate. I think he's done a PhD in Harvard. He may have even done more than one PhD. He's written books. He's written very well-received books on British economic history and is clearly a phenomenally bright man. Uh, Liz Truss herself has been derided for her wooden presentation style, but whether or not she still is, but she clearly was very bright once upon a time. Um, she, uh, there's a, an economist who writes for the FT and does an absolutely brilliant BBC radio program every Wednesday um, about numbers. It's called More or Less. Really good guy, Tim Harford. Um, heart's in the right place, writes brilliantly, is clearly very numerous. And he told us last week that when he was at Oxford, he did the toughest undergraduate mathematics course imaginable um, at Oxford, and I'm not surprised by that because he is obviously such a brilliant, numerate, mathematical bloke, and his tutorial partner was Liz Truss. So she clearly, um, of a type of intelligence, has a lot of it, and I think it would be wrong to underestimate her in that regard. But throughout all of my life, I've been continuously surprised by the extent to which supposedly incredibly bright people can do very dumb things. I often think that, 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 that we... Um, often miss a trick when we describe places like Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Yale as being um, the great institution, educational establishments that they are that generate great leaders and other types of people for our country. I think they're often, more often, institutions whereby we actually put these slightly odd, very bright academic people where they can do no harm and keep them away from running companies and governments. And that's where these very bright people perhaps should stay. Uh, because one of the things that Kwarteng has done, he's he's gotten gone to the Treasury. And one of these first acts has been to say, drop everything, uh, because we're now going for economic growth. Economic growth is the policy of this country, and everything else is subservient to that. Now, I know why he says that, and I think you would know why he says that, because economic growth solves an awful lot of problems. It would solve Ireland's supposed taxation problem, for example. If the economy keeps growing in the future in the way that it has in the past, Ireland's not going to have a taxation problem. It's going to have a budget surplus problem, all that sort of thing. Um, it may, I'm not appealing to trickle-down economics or the old cliches about a rising tide lifts all boats, but economic growth does solve an awful lot of economic problems or heads them off, prevents them from occurring. And it's a good thing. We can have a debate about the environmental consequences of growth and all that kind of stuff. But economic growth, you can understand why a new chancellor would say, drop everything, let's go for growth. 
I can't understand, however, why an economically literate Chancellor of the Exchequer would say to the Treasury, drop everything, go for economic growth. Because an economically literate Chancellor would know that that's really what the Treasury is all about, because the, the Treasury is full of people that knows the magic elixir of economic growth. An economically literate Chancellor knows that there's no button, policy button or policy lever lurking locked away in some dusty Treasury basement marked economic growth that they're not pushing on or pulling um, because there is no magic formula for economic growth. It's one of the great mysteries, actually, as to how different countries achieve it at different points in time. And economic historians like Kwarteng should know that there are libraries full of books on economic growth about how country A, B or C has achieved it and why um, it happened at the time. And it looks a bit mysterious and it looks a bit as if it was policy driven and it looks a bit as if this country just got lucky or unlucky. And there is this, in this incredible literature about the mystery of economic growth and the way it's always context dependent. It always depends. They're still arguing, Jim, about why the Industrial Revolution happened when it did and happened in the UK rather than any other country. They still haven't sorted that one out. So it's incredibly naive to tell the Treasury to do this. And I think that sets the context for what they're doing overall. I think it's incredibly naive. It ignores an awful lot of history. It ignores what economists know, which is that taxation sometimes leads to economic growth, lower taxes. Often it doesn't. It, it all depends. You could replicate everything that Ireland did over the last 30 years in another country. All the policy levers that you've pulled and pushed, lower taxes, um, IFSCs down in the Dublin docks, all that sort of thing, and have a completely different economic outcome. It's never the same thing twice. So um, I'm baffled by it. I don't think it's going to work. Of course it might. They might get lucky. And that's the, the whole point about economic policy, a bit like Napoleon and his generals, that you need, you need luck. Um, I don't think they are going to be lucky because we, we are at the start of or in the, in the foothills of a major energy crisis, both from a price and an environmental point of view. And I think the next two years in the UK and elsewhere are going to be extremely tough and extremely rough. So my best guess is that they will fail. OK, that's dark. Um, the... Queen's death last week has obviously had a huge impact, um, even on this side of the water, or at least on the island of Ireland. I think we saw Michelle O'Neill, the deputy leader of Sinn Féin, and Alex Maskey uh, of Sinn Féin actually performing bloody well in relation to the death of the Queen. You know, and it, it would give you hope that if Sinn Féin do assume power on both sides of the island, well, perhaps there will be a more pragmatic approach. But anyway, that's beside the point. But I saw an awful lot on social media about unionists complaining like hell about yeah. the time that Prince Charles spent with Sinn Féin. And yes. um, he shouldn't have done it. And da -da -da -da, moan, 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 groan, 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 instead of making a comment like the one that you just made. So, yes, it's hopeful when you see Michelle O'Neill and Sinn Féin behaving in that way, it, it was great, but your heart just sinks when you see unionists doing their usual complaining and negativity. And will these people ever meet anybody in the middle? And no, no, you know. not, 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 not a chance. But Chris, it strikes me looking at it from this side of the water that the Queen has been a sort of a symbol of stability in the UK over many years. Uh, you know, when all boats were losing their heads, she maintained a pretty calm, controlling type demeanor. 
Um, now that she's gone, do you think there's a risk that we've removed the pin from the grenade, the social grenade? Well, I wouldn't put it as stark as that, but I do think there are risks that, that the sort of things that she represented will be a, a real loss. And it's interesting, if, uh, speaking as somebody who's not a, uh, a monarchist, I would be a mild Republican in the British rather than the Irish sense, but I'd probably be a Republican in the Irish sense as well, believe it or not, but that's a different story. Um, the, 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 Queen, uh, the, the response to the Queen's death has been, as I'm sure you know, extraordinary, both in Britain and around the world, and it's elicited all sorts of responses which I would have expected and I've been surprised at. The, the thing that's becoming clear to me is that she did represent um, a source of glue for society to be held together. Not the only one, but she clearly represented something to people that, that was connection, um, as you say, stability. I think in the round, she offered a kind of a paradox, which was that she offered a blank sheet of paper because nobody knew very much about the Queen, despite the glare of publicity. And different people from different segments of the society were able to write their own story onto that blank canvas that represented the Queen and draw some comfort from that at a time of great change and great instability. Because if you remember, you know, 1952, before either of us were born, um, Britain was still in rationing. It was still very much post-war. It was a grim place. My own parents at the time emigrated from the UK, partly because it was so grim. And... Um, People have been able to write their own story, their own narrative around the Queen. And that source of stability, that source of connection, that sort of binding of society together, that sort of giving people a sense when it was being lost in so many different other ways that we're all in this together. Remember, she was Queen when Margaret Thatcher said, there is no such thing as society. And I think that one of the needs of our species is that we do need connection. We do need sources of stability. We do need narrative myths, and I think that the Queen supplied narrative myths to people that, that sustained them. And I'm not knocking that. We all need them. And, but it was, of course, a time when a lot of narrative myths were disappearing. I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody that is religious, but an awful lot of people have lost their religion in the UK in recent decades. And the, the narrative myth that is belief in God um, has disappeared from many people's lives. And I think it's become a more atomized individualistic culture from that respect. We've adopted the American economic model of consumerism, individualism. We know all about that. And I think that does lead to what the classical sociologists talked about, Emil Durkheim's um, thesis of anomie, about the way in which society gradually falls apart. So she, th this is straying into grandiose Christian's theory of everything about society's ties, society's bonds, and the way in which they have been loosening. And um, Britain, unlike Ireland, is now an incredibly divided place, um, and particularly so because of the Brexit thing. It really has had a toxic influence on everyday life in the UK. So many things are seen through a prism of Brexit. And politically, that means that um, the centre in, uh, in Britain has been eviscerated in a similar way to the way in which the political centre in Northern Ireland has been eviscerated, but not in the South, not yet. Um, and as you say, is I think the question you're asking, is Prince Charles up to the task of providing that little bit of glue that's, that the royal family represented, the Queen represented? It's just a little bit. Um, I think the chances of him doing the same thing, performing the same role, providing the narrative myth 
that sustain some <clears throat> excuse me sustain some people i think the risks of, uh, i don't think he's going to do it personally but that's a forecast i don't know um i i, I think he's a very different um animal to compared to his mother and i don't think he's he will have what it takes but that that's my perhaps slightly prejudiced view um so i wouldn't put it as starkly as taking the pin out of the grenade your question jim but um british society is fragmenting um there is a vague sense that everything is getting worse here from a whole host of perspectives not least economic but also social and political and i i don't think the new king is going to do very much about any of that um the the, the biggest surprise the, the the thing that i think propelled me to think quite deeply about all of this was the number of people you saw doing Vox Pop interviews outside Buckingham Palace or Balmoral who talked about what the Queen actually not represented, not just represented for them in their lives, but what the Queen, and I'm quoting here, did for me in my life. So that there was, people have a sense of the Queen actually in a practical sense doing something for them, um, which is incredible because I can't imagine what tangible things the queen did for many people other than perhaps shake their hand but obviously it's real and i don't want to disrespect it i i respect it as a very real phenomena um but it's gone and i and i do think it will be missed and i do think it will be seen as a loss and i think it will contribute to the gradual degradation of life in the uk yeah the economist magazine last weekend also reported a nipsis survey carried out on its behalf which showed that 69% of Britons believe that the country is in decline. And that includes 60% of Conservative voters. Um, that is a pretty stark um, reflection, I guess, of how British people feel about the world at the moment. And this was before the Queen died. I suspect uh, with the Queen now gone from the scene that that number probably would be higher. So, uh significant challenges economically and from a society point of view. Yeah, I think that if you took the opinion poll today, it might actually show an improvement because, I mean, people are willing to line up from all the way between Buckingham Palace or Westminster Hall, sorry, where the Queen currently rests, and London Bridge, which is several miles and many, many hours of through-the-night queuing. That's a sense of togetherness that I think people feel that we've lost in the UK a sense that we are all in it in some way or other or in one way or another together. And I think when you see that sort of thing, people feel better about the society that they live in. Um, I think that the fundamental problem that the UK and other countries face, particularly the United States, is that we most definitely are not all in it together anymore. And um, that's the reason why I think people are feeling, one of the reasons why people are feeling that it's getting worse, because it is. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Talk Cheers, again. Talk soon. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.